1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show number 174. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a fine show lined up. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show. We have Megan Arco with her Explained in 60 Seconds, White Holes, Megan's talking about. Then we have a fact article from myself, give you a little clue what's in that fact article. What have these people got in common? Gregory Frost, James Patrick Kelly, Michael Swanick, Mercurio D. Riviera, Sheila Williams... All will be revealed on my little fact article. Then we have one of the main fictions. It is Damien Knight's special delivery. Then we have our fantastic Amy H. Sturgis, kicking off with Looking Back at Genre History. Then we have some more main fiction. David Brins, a professor at Harvard. Then we have promo, a little promo by FogCon. Do look out for that. That is... Starship Sofa us show number 174. Do you hope you'll stick around? We're going to jump straight in, because I'll keep my little bits of waffle for my little fact article. We're going to jump straight in with Megan Arco. And Megan, explained in 60 seconds.
2: Explain in 60 seconds, White Hole. In our universe, time runs in one direction, forwards, This is a good thing, as otherwise life could get very messy. Some processes are reversible. You can change the conditions and reverse certain reactions, just as if you were rewinding time like a tape. Other processes, however, are not. For example, if you put too much milk in your coffee, can you take it out again? Now imagine falling into a black hole. Obviously no one's ever been inside one to actually check our theories, but it's a pretty sure thing that if you fell in, you wouldn't be in much of a fit state to send a postcard home. What happens if you throw your arch-enemy into your local black hole, videoing the moment of your triumph for posterity, of course, and then played the tape backwards? You would see him pop out again, good as new, and ready to once more start destroying your favourite planets. This is the idea behind a white hole. Essentially just a black hole running backwards in time, a white hole would spew matter and light back into the universe instead of sucking it in. However, while they do represent an exact solution of Einstein's equations, The argument goes that white holes cannot really exist in our universe since they would violate the second law of thermodynamics. That's the one that says that entropy always increases. Things get more disordered over time. My spare room is an excellent example of this.
1: There you go. That's. I just love them. I just love them so much. Megan, thank you so much. So at the top of the show, I asked, what have these people got in common? Gregory Frost, James Patrick Kelly, Michael Swanick, Mercurio D. Riviera, Sheila Williams. Well, they're all taking part in Starship Sova's very own first writer's workshop. Yes, we have another event now live as well. You can come over to the site and check it out. It starts in, according to my little widget here, 38 days time. And I am... So chuffed a bits about you know landing these kind of quality writers to kind of give this little workshop, you know. And this is probably well, I can't think of any you know kind of genre places where you can online where you can do these kind of workshops live, you know. So really looking forward to that. This is what's going to be covered in this workshop. Gregory Frost is going to give you a lecture on the beginnings when you're starting to kind of write, you know, first write your story. Then James Patrick Kelly. Plot Tricks from the Dark Side, that's going to be his lecture. Then Michael Swanwick's going to give a nice big lecture on how to fix your story after it's written and you discover that it doesn't work. Then Mercurio de Riviera is going to talk about his writing group. Now, Mercurio is part of, which are things, you know, probably... One of the hubs now has got some great new writers in there. He's, he's involved in the Alt Ad Fluid Writers Group, and he's just going to talk a little bit about that and why you know why these things are good for your writing. Then we have Sheila Williams, you know, the editor from Asimov, who's won so many awards at the place. Sheila's going to say you know what an editor wants as well. So you'll get those things live on the day, but what else do you get with the writer's workshop? Same as the narrator's workshop. Seven days after the the event has taken place, I will send you the video, like a a HD video of the whole recording, so you can go back and listen and watch again as well. So that is, and actually, that's the the vital part of it. It's great being involved and having it live. You can ask questions to the writers. You can, you can interact with them, but anybody like me, you know, it's in and it's out one year and then it's gone and I forget so much. Where this is, you can just put it back on, play it, you know, go over what they're saying, go over their plots, their techniques, how to get an amazing story novel done. The Writers Workshop now, you know what I was talking about before, we were kind of putting it all in a dirt, certain categories and everything like that and Starships over HD. Well, the HD, which I struggled with, you know, because HD... Yes, it means video, but some people have HD videos and some others haven't and everything like that. And I put a little shout out for anyone who could come up with a better name. Because ah, I'm shocking at that kind of thing. And fantastic. Guy Weird stepped in with an email and just says, Tony, why don't you call it Deck?" You know, and actually Guy didn't realise as well Deck HD, you know, it just fits into place. So... That's it. You know, Starship Sofa's holodeck. And we're going to have, actually, when you go to the shop, there's there's a couple of different sections. There is going to be holodeck workshops, which is, you know, the kind of writing workshop and the narrator's workshop and, you know, those kind of workshops. Then we're going to have the holodeck as well, where you can go down one route and see the video section as well. So, yeah, so... We have a new Writer's Workshop. Do pop over there, sign up now. Tickets are, are selling, so I'm, I'm pleased to bits about that. Do make yourself, you know, if you want to learn, if you want to learn from the, the best, come over. Don't forget as well, just out of curiosity, there's only a couple of days left till the narrator's workshop. We had a, a dry run. All the guests who are taking part in that, and that's just looking fantastic, and I'm so You know that's that's been selling great. So if you're interested in that, and you know you're you're thinking about you want to make some money from narrating, listen, there is money out there to be made. Ray Sizemore is that man who? Well, they're all making money. Do you know? But Ray Sizemore tells you how to make it, where to make it, and get this as well: the narrator of this next story, Thomas, has signed up for the narrator's workshop. So we're going to kick off with the first part of fiction a day, and it's by Damien Knight, special delivery. Damien Francis Knight. He was actually born in 1922. He died in 2002. American science fiction author, editor, critic, fan—the whole lot. Apparently, his forte was short stories, and you know he's kind of widely acknowledged as being the, kind of the grand master of the genre. This is the guy that was actually responsible for tracking down Frank Herbert to publish *Dune*. And you'll have heard all of the Damon Knight Memorial Grandmaster Award, named after this guy. His first professional sale was a cartoon drawn to a science fiction magazine, Amazing Stories. And his actually first story, Resilience, was published in 1941. An edit actually an editorial error made this kind of the whole ending of the story totally incomprehensible and no one could understand it. But it was actually reprinted elsewhere as, in kind of as Damon Knight intended it to. Damien Knight was one of the one of the kind of the gods the legends that myself and Kieran hit in one of the original starship Sova shows as well i mean that 's what he meant to Kieran and myself. you know this guy was instrumental in, in building up the whole fan base you know from the ground up and he was acknowledged for it as well, you know named after the grandmaster award. He was married to Kate Wilheim, who just if you haven 't read that story where late the sweet bird sang. Oh, please, 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 go out and track that book down. That was actually, that was a, um, a um, <laughs> that was a Hugo winning book in 1977. That's just an amazing one. It was one of those, I read it through the Masterworks series. They picked it up and fantastic. Please, two things, check out Damien Knight and go and get yourself that book, where late the sweet bird sang. Fantastic. Can't say anything better than that. And like I mentioned before in the fact articles, my little fact article about the narrator's workshop, this story is narrated by Tomasz Mojewski.
3: Special Delivery by Damon Knight Len and Moira Connington lived in a rented cottage with a small yard, a smaller garden, and too many fir trees. The lawn, which Len seldom had time to mow, was full of weeds, and the garden was overgrown with blackberry brambles. The house itself was clean and smelled better than most city apartments, and Moira kept uraniums in the windows. However, it was dark on account of the furs. Approaching the door one late spring afternoon, Len tripped on an unnoticed flagstone and scattered examination papers all the way to the porch. When he picked himself up, Moira was giggling in the doorway. That was funny! The hell it was, said Len. I banged my nose! He picked up his chemistry bee papers in a stiff silence. A red drop fell on the last one. Damn it! Moira held the screen door open for him, looking contrite and faintly surprised. She followed him into the bathroom. Len, I didn't mean to laugh. Does it hurt much? No, said Len, staring fiercely at his scraped nose in the mirror. It was throbbing like a gong. That's good. It was the funniest thing. I mean, funny-peculiar, she clarified hastily. Len stared at her. The whites of her eyes were showing. Is there anything the matter with you? he demanded. I don't know, she said on a rising note. Nothing like that ever happened to me before. I didn't think it was funny at all. I was worried about you, and I didn't know I was going to laugh. She laughed again, a trifle nervously. Maybe I'm cracking up. Moira was a dark-haired young woman with a placid, friendly disposition. Len had met her in his senior year at Columbia, with— looking at it impartially, which Len seldom did, regrettable results. At present, in her seventh month, she was shaped rather like a bosomy cupid doll. Emotional upsets, he remembered, may occur frequently during this period. He leaned to get past her belly and kissed her forgivingly. You're probably tired. Go sit down and I'll get you some coffee. Except that Moira had never had any hysterics till now, or morning sickness either. She burped instead. And anyhow, was there anything in the literature about fits of giggling? After supper, he marked seventeen sets of papers desultorily in red pencil, then got up to look for the baby book. There were four dog-eared paper-bound volumes with smiling infants' faces on the covers, but the one he wanted wasn't there. He looked behind the bookcase and on the wicker table beside it. Moira? hm? Where the devil is the other baby book? I've got it. Len went and looked over her shoulder. She was staring at a drawing of a fetus lying in a sort of upside-down yoga position inside a cross-sectioned woman's body. That's what he looks like, she said. Mama! The diagram was of a fetus at term. What was that about your mother? Len asked, puzzled. Don't be silly, she said abstractedly. He waited, but she didn't look up or turn the page. After a while he went back to his work. He watched her. Eventually, she leafed through to the back of the book, read a few pages, and put it down. She lighted a cigarette and immediately put it out again. She fetched up a belch. That was a good one, Len said admiringly. Moira sighed. Feeling tense, Len picked up his coffee cup and started toward the kitchen. He halted beside Moira's chair. On the side table was her after-dinner cup, still full of coffee. Black, scummed with oil droplets, stone cold. Didn't you want your coffee? he asked solicitously. She looked at the cup. I did, but. She paused and shook her head, looking perplexed. Well, do you want another cup now? Yes, please. No! Len, who had begun the step, rocked back on his heels. Which, damn it? Her face got all swollen. Oh, Len, I'm so mixed up! she said and begun to tremble. Len felt part of his irritation spilling over into protectiveness. What you need, he said firmly is a drink. He climbed a stepladder to get at the top cabinet shelf which cashed their liquor when they had any. Small upstate towns and their school boards being what they were, this was one of many necessary financial precautions. Inspecting the doleful few fingers of whiskey in the bottle, Len swore under his breath. They couldn't afford a decent supply of booze or new clothes for Moira. The original idea had been for Len to teach a year while they saved enough money so that he could go back for his master's degree. More lately, this proving unlikely, they had merely been trying to put enough aside for summer school, and even that was beginning to look like the wildest optimism. High school teachers without seniority weren't supposed to be married. Or graduate physics students, for that matter. He mixed two stiff highballs and carried them back into the living room. Here you are. School Ah, she said appreciatively. That tastes Ugh! She set the glass down and stared at it with her mouth half open. "'What's the matter now?' She turned her head carefully as if she were afraid it would come off. "'Len, I don't know. Mama! "'That's the second time you've said that. What is all said what? "'Mama, look, kid, if you're—' "'I didn't!' she appeared a little feverish. "'Sure you did,' said Len reasonably. "'Once when you were looking at the baby book, and then again just now, "'after you said ugh to the highball.' Speaking of which, "'Mama drink milk,' said Moira, speaking with exaggerated clarity. Moira hated milk. Len swallowed half his highball, turned and went silently into the kitchen. When he came back with the milk, Moira looked at it as if it contained a snake. "'Len, I didn't say that.' "'Okay.' "'I didn't. I didn't say Mama, and I didn't say that about the milk,' her voice quavered. "'And I didn't laugh at you when you fell down.' Len tried to be patient. It was somebody else. It was! She looked down at her gingham-covered bulge. You won't believe me. Put your hand there. No, a little lower. Under the cloth, her flesh was warm and solid against his palm. Kicks, he inquired. Not yet. Now, she said in a strained voice, you in there, if you want your milk, kick three times. Len opened his mouth and shut it again. Under his hand there were three explicit kicks, one after the other. Moira closed her eyes, held her breath, and drank the milk down in one long, horrid gulp. Once in a great while, Moira read, cell cleavage will not have followed the orderly pattern that produces a normal baby. In these rare cases, some parts of the body will develop excessively, while others do not develop at all. This disorderly cell growth, which is strikingly similar to the wild cell growth that we know as cancer, her shoulders moved convulsively in a shudder. Bleh. Why do you keep reading that stuff if it makes you feel that way? I have to, she said absently. She picked up another book from the stack. There's a page missing. Len attacked the last of his medium-boiled egg in a noncommittal manner. It's a wonder it's held together this long, he said, which was perfectly just. The book had had something spilled on it, partially dissolving the glue, and was in an advanced state of anarchy. However, the fact was that Len had torn out the page in question four nights ago, after reading it carefully. The topic was psychoses in pregnancy. Moira had now decided that the baby was male, that his name was Leonardo, not referring to Len, but to da Vinci, that he had informed her of these things, along with a good many others, that he was keeping her from her favorite foods and making her eat things she detested, like liver and tripe, and that she had to read books of his choice all day long in order to keep him from kicking. It was miserably hot. With commencement only two weeks away, Len's students were torpid and galvanic by terms. Then there was the matter of his contract next year, and the possible opening at Oster High, which would mean more money, and the parent-teacher's thing tonight at which Superintendent Greer and his wife would be wriggly present. Moira was knee-deep in Volume One of Der Untergang des Abendlandes, moving her lips. An occasional guttural escaped her. Len cleared his throat. Moi? What in God's name does he mean by that? What, Len? He made an irritated noise. Why not try the English edition? Lee wants to learn German. What were you going to say? Len closed his eyes for a moment. About this PTA business, you sure you want to go? Well, of course. It's pretty important, isn't it? Unless you think I look too sloppy. No, no, damn it. But are you feeling up to it? There were faint, violet crescents under Moira's eyes. She had been sleeping badly. "'Sure,' she said. "'All right. And you'll go see the doctor tomorrow." "'I said I would.' "'And you won't say anything about Leo to Mrs. Greer or anybody?' She looked slightly embarrassed. "'Not till he's born, I think. Don't you? It would be an awful hard thing to prove. Even you wouldn't have believed me if you hadn't felt him kick.' This experiment had not been repeated, though Len had asked often enough. All little Leo wanted, Moira said, was to establish communication with his mother. He didn't seem to be interested in Len at all. Too young, she explained. And still, Len recalled the frogs his biology class had dissected last summer. One of them had had two hearts. This disorderly cell growth, like a cancer. Unpredictable. Extra fingers or toes. Or a double dose of cortex? "'And I'll burp like a lady, if at all,' Moira assured him cheerfully as they got ready to leave. The room was empty, except for the ladies of the committee, two nervously smiling male teachers, and the impressive bulk of Superintendent Greer when the Conningtons arrived. Card-table legs screaked across the bare floor. The air was heavy with wood polish and musk. Greer advanced, beaming fixedly. "'Well, isn't this nice? How are you young folks this warm evening?' "'Oh, we thought we'd be earlier, Mr. Greer,' said Moira, with pretty vexation. She looked surprisingly schoolgirlish and chic. The lump that was Leo was hardly noticeable unless you caught her in profile. "'I'll go right now and help the ladies. There must be something I can still do.' "'No, now, we won't hear of it. But I'll tell you what you can do. You can go right over there and say hello to Mrs. Greer. I know she's dying to sit down and have a good chat with you.' Go ahead now. Don't worry about this husband of yours. I'll take care of him. Moira receded into a scattering of small shrieks of pleasure, at least half of them arcing across a gap of mutual dislike. Greer, exhibiting perfect dentures, exhaled Listerine. His pink skin looked not only scrubbed but disinfected. His gold-rimmed glasses belonged in an optometrist's window, and his tropical suit had obviously come straight from the cleaner's. It was impossible to think of Greer, unshaven Greer, smoking a cigar, Greer with a smudge of axle-grease on his forehead, or Greer making love to his wife. "'Well, sir, this weather. When I think of what this valley was like twenty years ago, at today's prices—' Len listened with growing admiration, putting in comments where required. He had never realized before that there were so many absolutely neutral topics of conversation—' A few more people straggled in, raising the room temperature about half a degree per capita. Greer did not perspire. He merely glowed. Across the room, Moira was now seated chummily with Mrs. Greer, a large-bosomed woman in an outrageously unfashionable hat. Moira appeared to be telling a joke. Len knew perfectly well that it was a clean one, but he listened tensely all the time, until he heard Mrs. Greer yelp with laughter. Her voice carried well, "'Oh, that's priceless! Oh, dear, I only hope I can remember it!' Len had resolutely not been thinking of ways to turn the conversation toward the Oster vacancy. He stiffened abruptly when he realized that Greer had abruptly begun to talk shop. His heart began pounding absurdly. Greer was asking highly pertinent questions in a good-humored but businesslike way, drawing Len out and not even bothering to be the slightest bit Machiavellian about it. Len answered candidly, "'except when he was certain that he knew what the superintendent wanted to hear. "'Then he lied like a Trojan. "'Mrs. Greer had conjured up a premature pot of tea, "'and, oblivious of the stares of the thirsty teachers present, "'she and Moira were hogging it, heads together, "'as if they were plotting to overthrow the Republic or exchanging recipes. "'Greer listened attentively to Len's final reply, "'which was delivered with as pious an air "'as if Len had been a Boy Scout swearing on the manual.' But since the question had been, do you plan to make teaching your career, there was not a word of truth in it. He then inspected his paunch and assumed a mild theatrical frown. Len, with that social sixth sense, which is unmistakable when it operates, knew that his next words were going to be, You may have heard that Oster High will be needing a new science teacher next fall. At this point, Moira made a noise like a seal. The ensuing silence was broken a moment later by a hearty scream. "'followed instantly by a clatter and a bone-shaking thud. "'Mrs. Greer was sitting on the floor, legs sprawled, hat over her eye. "'She appeared to be attempting to perform some sort of excessively pagan dance. "'It was Leo!' Moira incoherently told Len at home. "'You know she's English. She said of course a cup of tea wouldn't hurt me. "'And she insisted I go ahead and drink it while it was hot, and I couldn't—' "'No, no, wait!' said Len in a controlled fury. What? So I drank some, and Leo kicked up and made me burp the burp I was saving, and—oh, Lord! Then he kicked the teacup out of my hand into her lap, and I wish I was dead! On the following day, Len took Moira to the doctor's office, where they read dog-eared copies of The Rotarian and Field and Stream for an hour. Dr. Barry was a little round man with soulful eyes and a twenty-four-hour bedside manner, On the walls of his office, where it is customary for doctors to hang all sorts of diplomas and certificates of membership, Barry had only three. The rest of the space was filled with enlarged, colored photographs of beautiful, beautiful children. When Len followed Moira determinedly into the consulting room, Barry looked mildly shocked for a moment, then apparently decided to carry on as if nothing outré had happened. You could not say that he spoke, or even whispered. He rustled. Now, Mrs Connington, we're looking just fine today. How have we been feeling? Just fine. My husband thinks I'm insane. That's good Well, that's a funny thing for him to think, isn't it? Barry glanced at the wall midway between himself and Len, then shuffled some file cards rather nervously. Now, have we had any soreness in our stomach? Yes, he's been kicking me black and blue. Barry misinterpreted Moira's brooding glance at Len, and his eyebrows twitched involuntarily. The baby, said Len. The baby kicks her! Barry coughed. Any headaches? Dizziness? Vomiting? Swelling in our legs or ankles? No? All righty. Now let's just find out how much we've gained, and then we'll go up on the examination table. Barry drew the sheet down over Moira's abdomen, as if it were an exceptionally fragile egg. He probed delicately with his fat fingertips, then used the stethoscope. Those X-rays, said Len. Have they come back yet? Mm "'Mm-hmm,' said Barry. "'Yes, they have.' He moved the stethoscope and listened again. "'Did they show anything unusual?' Len asked. Barry's eyebrows twitched a polite question. "'We've been having a little argument,' Moira said in a strained voice, "'about whether this is an ordinary baby or not.' Barry took the stethoscope tubes away from his ears. He gazed at Moira like an anxious spaniel. "'Now let's not worry about that.' "'We're going to have a perfectly healthy, wonderful baby, "'and if anybody tells us differently, "'why, we'll just tell them to go jump in a lake, won't we?' "'The baby is absolutely normal,' said Len in a marked manner. "'Absolutely,' Barry applied the stethoscope again. "'His face blanched. "'What's the matter?' Len asked after a moment. "'The doctor's gaze was fixed and glassy. "'The jidus uterinus," Barry muttered.' He pulled the stethoscope off abruptly and stared at it. No, of course it couldn't be. Now isn't that a nuisance? We seem to be picking up a radio broadcast with our little stethoscope here. I'll just go and get another instrument. Moira and Lend exchanged glances. Moira's was almost excessively bland. Barry confidently came in with a new stethoscope, put the diaphragm against Moira's belly, listened for an instant, and twitched once all over as if his mainspring had snapped. Visibly jangling, he stepped away from the table. His jaw worked several times before any sound came out. Excuse me, he said, and walked out in an uneven line. Len snatched up the instrument he had dropped. Like a bell ringing underwater, muffled but clear, a tiny voice was shouting You bladder headed pill pusher! You bedside vacuum! You fifth rate tree surgeon! You inflated. A pause. Is that you, Connington? Get off the line. I haven't finished with Dr. Bedpen yet. Moira smiled like a Buddha-shaped bomb. Well, she said. We've got to think, Len kept saying over and over. You've got to think, Moira was combing her hair, snapping the comb smartly at the end of each stroke. I've had plenty of time to think ever since it happened. When you catch up... Len flung his tie at the carved wooden pineapple on the corner of the footboard. "'Moy, be reasonable! The chances against this kid kicking three times in any one-minute period are only about one in a hundred. The chances against anything like—' Wera grunted and stiffened for a moment. Then she cocked her head to one side with a listening expression, a new mannerism of hers that was beginning to send intangible snakes crawling up Len's spine. "'What now?' he asked sharply. "'He says to keep our voices down.' "'He's thinking.' "'Len's fingers clenched convulsively, and a button flew off his shirt. "'Shaking, he pulled his arms out of the sleeves and dropped the shirt on the floor. "'Look, I just want to get this straight. "'When he talks to you, you don't hear him shouting all the way up past your liver and lights. "'What you know perfectly well, he reads my mind. "'That isn't the same as—' "'Len took a deep breath. "'Let's not get off on that. "'What I want to know is, what is it like?' Do you seem to hear a real voice, or do you just know what he's telling you, without knowing how you know? Moira put the comb down in order to think better. It isn't like hearing a voice. You'd never confuse one with the other. It's more... The nearest I can come to it is... It's like remembering a voice, except that you don't know what's coming. Len picked his tie off the floor and abstractedly began nodding it on his bare chest. And he sees what you see, he knows what you're thinking... "'He can hear when people talk to you.' "'Of course. "'This is tremendous!' "'Len began to blunder around the bedroom, "'not looking where he was going. "'They thought Macaulay was a genius. "'This kid isn't even born. "'I heard him. "'He was cussing Barry out like Monty Woolley. "'He had me reading "'The Man Who Came to Dinner Two Days Ago.' "'Len made his way around "'a small bedside table by trial and error. "'That's another thing. "'How much could you say about his, his personality?' I mean, does he seem to know what he's doing, or is he just striking out wildly in all directions? He paused. Are you sure he's really conscious at all? Moira began, That's a silly... and stopped. Define consciousness, she said doubtfully. All right, what I really mean... Why am I wearing this necktie? He ripped it off and threw it over a lampshade. What I mean... Are you sure you're really conscious? Okay. You make a joke, I laugh, ha-ha. What I'm trying to ask is, have you seen any evidence of creative thought, organized thought, or is he just integrating along the lines of, of instinctive responses? Do you... I know what you mean. Shut up a minute. I don't know. I mean, is he awake or asleep and dreaming about us, like the Red King? I don't know. And if that's it, what'll happen when he wakes up? Moira took off her robe, folded it neatly, and maneuvered herself between the sheets. "'Come to bed.' Len got one sock off before another thought struck him. "'He reads your mind. Can he read other people's?' he looked appalled. "'Can he read mine?' "'He doesn't. Whether it's because he can't, I don't know. I think he just doesn't care.' Len pulled the other sock halfway down and left it there. In a stiffer tone, he said, "'One of the things he doesn't care about is whether I have a job.' No, he thought it was funny. I wanted to sink through the floor, but I had all I could do to keep him from laughing when she fell down. Len, what are we going to do? He swiveled around and looked at her. Look, he said. I didn't mean to sound that gloomy. We'll do something. We'll fix it. Really? I hope so. Careful of his elbows and knees, Len climbed into the bed beside her. Okay now? Hmm, uh... Moira tried to sit up suddenly and almost made it. She wound up propped on one elbow and said indignantly, Oh, no! Len stared at her in the dimness. What? She grunted again. Len, get up! All right! Len, hurry! Len fought his way convulsively past a treacherous sheet and staggered up, goose pimpled and tense. What's wrong? You'll have to sleep on the couch! The sheets are in the bottom. On that couch? Are you crazy? I can't help it, she said in a small, faint voice. Please don't argue. You'll just have to. Why? We can't sleep in the same bed, she wailed. He says it's, oh, unhygienic. Len's contract was not renewed. He got a job waiting on tables in a resort hotel, an occupation which pays more money than teaching future citizens the rudiments of three basic sciences, but for which Len had no aptitude. He lasted three days at it. He was then idle for a week and a half until his four years of college physics earned him employment as a clerk in an electrical shop. His employer was a cheerfully aggressive man who assured Len that there were great opportunities in radio and television, and firmly believed that atom bomb tests were causing all the bad weather. Moira, in her eighth month, walked to the county library every day and trundled a load of books home in the perambulator. Little Leo, it appeared, was working his way simultaneously through biology, astrophysics, phrenology, chemical engineering, architecture, Christian science, psychosomatic medicine, marine law, business management, yoga, crystallography, metaphysics, and modern literature. His domination of Moira's life remained absolute, and his experiments with her regimen continued. One week she ate nothing but nuts and fruit, washed down with distilled water. The next she was on a diet of porterhouse steak, dandelion greens, and hadakal. With the coming of full summer, fortunately, few of the high school staff were in evidence. Len met Dr. Barry once on the street. Barry started, twitched, and walked off rapidly in an entirely new direction. The diabolical event was due on or about July twenty-ninth. Len crossed off each day on their wall calendar with an emphatic black grease pencil. It would, he supposed, be an uncomfortable thing at best to be the parent of a super-prodigy. Leo would no doubt be dictator of the world by the time he was fifteen, unless he would be assassinated first, but almost anything would be a fair price for getting Leo out of his maternal fortress. Then there was the day when Len came home to find Moira weeping over the typewriter, with a half-inch stack of manuscript beside her. It isn't anything. I'm just tired. He started this after lunch. Look. Len turned the face-down sheaf the right way up. DRONING, ABSORINTH, DEMI-URGE, HERE, BRIGRIMS, THE tale EYES UNDOTTED, GRUELING, AND LOOKING, and TURNS OFF, ALARM, SEIZES, CLOA'S, stewed BEARLY, A WRETCH, PENCE, THEREFORE, a WE, pawns, LET THE PANTS TAKE AIR OF THEMSELVES. THE FIRST THREE SHEETS WERE ALL LIKE THAT. THE FOURTH WAS A PERFECTLY GOOD PETRARCHIAN SONNET, REVILING THE CURRENT ADMINISTRATION AND THE POLITICAL PARTY OF WHICH LEN WAS A REGISTRATION DAY MEMBER. The fifth was hand-lettered in the Cyrillic alphabet and illustrated with geometric diagrams. Len put it down and stared shakily at Moira. "'No, go on,' she said. "'Read the rest.' The sixth and seventh were obscene limericks, and the eighth, ninth, and so on to the end of the stack were what looked like the first chapters of a rattling good historical adventure novel. Its chief characters were Cyrus the Great his jaunty bosomed daughter Lygia, of whom Len had never previously heard, and a one-armed greco adventurer named Xanthes. There were also courtesans, spies, apparitions, scullery slaves, oracles, cutthroats, lepers, priests, and men-at-arms in magnificent profusion. "'He's decided,' said Moira, "'what he wants to be when he's born.' When there were eighty pages of the manuscript, it was Moira who invented a title and byline for it. "'The Virgin of Persepolis,' by Leon Len, and mailed it off to a literary agent in New York. His response, a week later, was cautiously enthusiastic. He asked for an outline of the remainder of the novel. Moira replied that this was impossible, trying to sound as unworldly and impenetrably artistic as she could. She enclosed the thirty-odd pages Leo had turned out through her in the meantime. Nothing was heard from the agent for two weeks. At the end of this time, Moira received an astonishing document, exquisitely printed and bound in imitation leather, thirty-two pages including the index, containing three times as many clauses as a lease. This turned out to be a book contract. With it came the agent's check for nine hundred dollars. Len tilted his mop handle against the wall and straightened carefully, conscious of every individual gritty muscle in his back. How did women do housework every day, seven days a week, fifty-two goddamn weeks a year? It was a little cooler now that the sun was down, and he was working stripped shorts and bath slippers, but he might as well have been wearing an overcoat in a Turkish bath. The faint whisper of Moira's monstrous new electrical typewriter stopped, leaving a fainter hum. Len went into the living room and sagged on the arm of a chair. Moira, gleaming sweatily in a flowered housecoat, was lighting a cigarette. "'How's it going?' he asked, hoping for an answer. "'He hadn't always received one.' "'She switched off the machine wearily. "'Page 289. Xanthes killed Alexander.' "'Thought he would. "'How about Ganesh and Zuxius?' "'I don't know,' she frowned. "'I can't figure it out.' "'You know who it was that raped Marianne in the garden?' No, who?' "'Ganesh. You're kidding!' "'Nope,' she pointed to the stack of typescript. See for yourself. Len didn't move. But Ganesh was in Lydia, buying back the sapphire. He didn't return till... I know, I know, but he wasn't. That was Zuxius in a putty nose with his beard dyed. It's all perfectly logical, the way Leo explains it. Zuxius overheard Ganesh talking to the three Mongols. You remember, Ganesh thought there was somebody behind the curtain. Only that was when they heard Lygia scream, and while their backs were turned, All right. "'but for God's sakes, this fouls everything up. "'If Ganesh never went to Lydia, "'then he couldn't have had anything to do "'with distempering Cyrus's armor, "'and Zuxius couldn't either, because... "'It's exasperating! "'I know he's going to pull another rabbit out of the hat "'and clear everything up, but I don't see how.' "'Len brooded. "'It beats me. "'It had to be either Ganesh or Zuxius, "'or Philomene's, though that doesn't seem possible.' "'Look, dammit, if Zooksius knew about the Sapphire all the time, "'that rules out Philomenes once and for all. "'Unless... no. "'I forgot about that business in the temple. Hmm. "'Do you think Leo really knows what he's doing?' "'I'm certain. "'Lately I've been able to tell what he's thinking, "'even when he isn't talking to me. "'I mean, just generally, like when he's puzzling over something, "'or when he's feeling mean. "'It's going to be something brilliant, and he knows what it is, "'but he won't tell me. "'We'll just have to wait.' I guess so. Len stood up, grunting. You want me to see if there's anything in the pot? Please. Len wandered into the kitchen, turned the flame on under the silex, stared briefly at the dishes waiting in the sink, and wandered out again. Since the onslaught of the novel, Leo had relinquished his interest in Moira's diet, and she had been living on coffee. Small blessings. Moira was leaning back with her eyes closed, looking very tired. "'How's the money?' she asked without moving. "'Lousy. We're down to twenty-one bucks.' She raised her head and opened her eyes wide. "'We couldn't be! "'Len, how could anybody go through nine hundred dollars that fast?' "'Typewriter. "'And the dictaphone that Leo thought he wanted, "'till half an hour after it was paid for. "'We spent less than fifty on ourselves, I think. "'Rent. Groceries. "'It goes when there isn't any coming in.' She sighed. "'I thought it would last longer.' So did I. If he doesn't finish this thing in a few days, I'll have to go look for work again. Oh, that isn't good. How am I going to take care of the house and do Leo's writing for him? I know, but all right. If it works out, fine. If it doesn't, he must be near the end by now. She stubbed out her cigarette abruptly and sat up, hands over the keyboard. He's getting ready again. See about that coffee, will you? I'm half dead. Len poured two cups and carried them in. Moira was still sitting, poised in front of the typewriter, with a curious, half-formed expression on her face. Abruptly, the carriage whipped over, muttered to itself briefly, and thumped the paper up twice. Then it stopped. Moira's eyes got bigger and rounder. "'What's the matter?' said Len. He looked over her shoulder. The last line on the page read, "'To be continued in our next!' Moira's hands curled into small, helpless fists. After a moment, she turned off the machine. What? said Len incredulously. To be continued? What kind of talk is that? He says he's bored with the novel, Moira replied dully. He says he knows the ending, so it's artistically complete. It doesn't matter whether anybody else thinks so or not. She paused. But he says that isn't the real reason. Well? He's got two reasons. One is that he doesn't want to finish the book till he's certain he'll have complete control of the money it earns. "'Yes,' said Len, swallowing a lump of anger. "'That makes a certain amount of sense. "'It's his book. "'If he wants guarantees, you haven't heard the other one. "'All right, let's have it. "'He wants to teach us, "'so we'll never forget who the boss is in this family.'" "'Len, I'm awfully tired,' Moira complained piteously late that night. "'Let's just go over it once more. "'There has to be some way. "'He still isn't talking to you?' I haven't felt anything from him for the last twenty minutes. I think he's asleep. All right, then. Let's suppose he isn't going to listen to reason. I think we'd better. Len made an incoherent noise. Well, okay. I still don't see why we can't write the last chapter ourselves. It'd only be a few pages. Go ahead and try. Not me. You've done a little writing. Damn good, too. And if you're so sure all the clues are there... Look, if as you say you can't do it, all We'll hire somebody." A professional writer. It happens all the time. Thorn Smith's last novel. It wasn't Thorn Smith's, and it wasn't a novel, she said dogmatically. But it's sold. What one writer starts, another can finish. Nobody ever finished The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Oh, hell. Len, it's impossible. It is. Let me finish. If you're thinking we could have somebody rewrite the last part Leo did... Yeah, I just thought of that. Even that wouldn't do any good... "'You'd have to go all the way back, almost to page one. "'It would be another story when you got through. "'Let's go to bed.' "'Moy, do you remember when we used to worry about the law of opposites?' Mm. "'The law of opposites. "'When we used to be afraid the kid would turn out to be a pick-and-shovel man with a pointy head.' Mm. Mm. "'He turned. "'Moy was standing with one hand on her belly and the other behind her back. "'She looked as if she were about to start practicing a low bow and doubted she could make it.' "'What's the matter now?' he asked. "'Pain in the small of my back. Bad one? No. "'Belly hurt, too?' she frowned. "'Don't be foolish. I'm feeling for the contraction. "'There it comes. But you said the small of your back. "'Where do you think labor pains usually start?' The pains were coming at twenty-minute intervals, and the taxi had not arrived. Moira was packed and ready. Len was trying to set her a good example by remaining calm.' He strolled over to the wall calendar, gazed at it in an offhand manner, and turned away. "'Len, I know it's only the 15th of July,' she said impatiently. "'Huh? I didn't say anything about that.' "'You said it seven times. Sit down, you're making me nervous.' Len perched on the corner of the table, folded his arms, and immediately got up to look out of the window. On the way back, he circled the table in an aimless way, picked up a bottle of ink and shook it to see if the cap was on tight, stumbled over a wastebasket, carefully upended it, and sat down with an air of ici je suis, ici je reste. Nothing to worry about, he said firmly. Women have kids all the time. True. What for, he demanded violently. Moira grinned at him, then winced slightly and looked at the clock. Eighteen minutes this time. They're getting closer. When she relaxed, Len put a cigarette in his mouth and lighted it on only two tries. How's Leo taking it? Isn't saying. He feels she concentrated. "'Apprehensive. He tells me he's feeling strange, and he doesn't like it. I don't think he's entirely awake. Funny. I'm glad this is happening now,' Len announced. "'So am I, but—' "'Look,' said Len, moving energetically to the arm of her chair. "'We've always had it pretty good, haven't we? Not that it hasn't been tough at times, but, you know. I know. Well, that's the way it'll be again, once this is over. I don't care how much of a superbrain he is, once he's born—' You know what I mean? The only reason he's had the edge on us all this time is he could get at us, and we couldn't get at him. If he's got the mind of an adult, he can learn to act like one. It's that simple. Myra hesitated. You can't take him out to the woodshed. He's going to be a helpless baby, physically, like anybody else's. He has to be taken care of. All right. There are plenty of other ways. If he behaves, he gets to read. Things like that. That's right. But there's one other thing I thought of. You remember when you said, suppose he's asleep and dreaming, and what happens if he wakes up? Yeah. That reminded me of something else, or maybe it's the same thing. Do you know that a fetus in the womb only gets about half the amount of oxygen in his blood that he'll have when he starts to breathe? Len looked thoughtful. I forgot. Well, that's just one more thing Leo does that babies aren't supposed to do. Use as much energy as he does, you mean? What I'm getting at is... It can't be because he's getting more than the normal amount of oxygen, can it? I mean, he's the prodigy, not me. He must be using it more efficiently. And if that's it, what will happen when he gets twice as much? They had prepared and disinfected her, along with other indignities, and now she could see herself in the reflector of the big delivery table light, the image clear and bright, like everything else, but very haloed and swimmy, and looking like a bad statue of Sita. She had no idea how long she had been here. That was the dope, probably. But she was getting tired. "'Bear down,' said the staff doctor kindly, and before she could answer, the pain came up like violins, and she had to gulp at the tingly coldness of the laughing gas. When the mask lifted, she said, "'I am bearing down!' But the doctor had gone back to work and wasn't listening. Anyhow, she had Leo. "'How are you feeling?' His answer was muddled. "'Because of the anesthetic?' but she didn't really need it. Her perception of him was clear. Darkness and pressure. Impatience. A slow, satanic anger. And something else. Uncertainty? Dread? Two or three more ought to do it. Bear down. Fear. Unmistakable now. And a desperate determination. Doctor, he doesn't want to be born! Seems that way sometimes, doesn't it? Now bear down, good and hard. "'Tell him to stop. blur To danger! Stop! I feel whirr! I stop! I stop!' "'What, Leo, what?' "'Bear down,' said the doctor abstractedly, faintly like a voice underwater, gasping before it drowns. "'Hurry, I hate you. Tell him. Sealed incubator. Tenth oxygen. Nine tenths inert gases. Hurry, hurry, hurry!' "'An incubator,' she panted. "'He'll need an incubator to live. Won't he?' "'Not this baby. A fine, normal, healthy one. "'He's idiot, lying, stupid, fool, need incubator, Tenth oxygen, tenth, tenth, hurry, hurry, before it's—' "'The pressure abruptly ceased. "'Leo was born. "'The doctor was holding him up by the heels, "'red, wrinkled, puny. "'But the voice was still there, very small, very far away. "'Too late. Same as death.' "'Then a hint of the old, cold arrogance. "'Now you'll never know who killed Cyrus.' The doctor slapped him smartly on the minuscule behind. The wizened, malevolent face writhed open, but it was only the angry squall of an ordinary infant that came out. Leo was gone, like a light turned off beneath the measureless ocean. Moira raised her head weakly. Give him one for me, she said.
1: Tomás, thank you so much. And I like what I love to say with these these writers. Copyright is any booker who wants it. (laughs) Next up is our very own Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Ames.
4: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. I'd like to start out by giving a shout out to my friend and colleague, Professor John Hasnes of Georgetown University. I've known John for a long time, and we've talked science fiction for a long time, but it just so happened that a conversation we shared last month when we were both at a conference in Washington, D.C., turned out to be the inspiration for today's segment, so I just want to say hello and thanks to John. Today I would like to look back at a series, a publishing endeavor that lasted less than a decade but which has had remarkable long-staying power and influence in science fiction. I'd like to talk about the Winston science fiction series. This was the brainchild of the John C. Winston Company. In what we often think of as the golden age of science fiction, the early 1950s, this company decided that it wanted to create a special series of novels, That would accomplish several things. One, it would be targeted specifically to juvenile readers. Two, it would showcase some of the great science fiction writers of the time. In other words, they would not be looking for first-time writers trying to establish themselves as authors of juvenile science fiction. They went to some of the best mainstream science fiction authors and invited them to write in the juvenile science fiction subgenre. Tried and true authors who already had a past history of success and accomplishment. And third, these works would be clearly differentiated from disposable pulps. They would be published as hardback books, and the covers would feature the illustrations of some of the best science fiction artists of the time. The product was this. From 1952 to 1960, the John Winston Company published these books, and then in 1961, Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston published the rest, ending up with 35 science fiction juvenile novels by authors such as Arthur C. Clarke, Paul Anderson, and Ben Bova, and one nonfiction book, Rockets Through Space, the story of man's preparations to explore the universe, by Lester Del Rey, illustrated by artists such as Virgil Finlay and Ed Inschwiller, both of whom won Hugo Awards, and Mel Hunter and Alex Schomburg, both of whom were nominated for the Hugo Award, all, obviously, in art. Now, before I describe the series a little more closely, I should point out that there were a couple of things that the Winston science fiction set was reacting to and against. For one thing, this was a period of explosion in science fiction juvenile literature. Really, what started all of this out was Robert Heinlein's rocket ship Galileo in 1947 and its remarkable success that sort of started the ball rolling for an appreciation that there really was a market out there and the time was right to publish science fiction juveniles. The other thing that was affecting the shape of the series is other juvenile series such as the Lucky Star series by Isaac Asimov which ran from 1952 to 1958, and the earlier and iconic Tom Swift series, the original iteration of which ran from 1910 to 1941. These books were written with a certain kind of formula, and I'm not knocking the formula. I'm just saying that it was particularly aimed at a given end, which was that... Young readers could pick up any book in the series and know that they were having a standalone story, an experience that tied in with their other knowledge of the series. In other words, it didn't matter if the books were read in order or not, because the starting and end point of each of them was essentially the same place. The creators of the Winston series, on the other hand, were committed to character growth and development over the course of a single novel. They did not want their protagonists to end up in the same spot from which they began. So in this way, the series helped shape the tastes of young readers and prime them for more adult, mainstream science fiction work, where... In fact, there is character development and there is change over the course of a novel. That isn't to say that there weren't series within the Winston series, because there were. Two books are known as the Clonar series, Son of the Stars from 1952 and Planet of Light from 1953, both by Raymond F. Jones. There were also three books in the Jim Stanley series, Step to the Stars in 1954, Mission to the Moon in 1956, and Moon of Mutiny in 1961, all by Lester Del Rey. The other books in the series were standalone novels, self-contained tales with a unique protagonist whose story began and ended in the space of a single novel. I've already mentioned Arthur C. Clarke, Paul Anderson, Ben Bova, Lester Del Rey. There were also authors such as Philip Latham, Kenneth Wright, Jack Vance, Donald Walheim, and Milton Lesser. In a way, looking down the list of authors, it's sort of a who's who of great 1950s and 1960s science fiction. The purpose of these books really was to develop the hunger for science fiction, to create lifelong science fiction readers. And I think it's a mark of the success of this series that the volumes are so highly sought today. If you can find one, well, first, obviously, read it. But you should also consider yourself fortunate if you want to take it on the market, because It is not uncommon for one of these books to bring a three-figure prize. Some of these 36 books were later reissued as paperbacks, so you don't necessarily have to find a hardback in order to enjoy one of these books. And I can tell you from personal experience that the paperbacks are obviously less expensive than the hardcovers are. Now, just between you and me, I will admit that I haven't read every single volume in the series, but the ones I have read have been great examples of classic juvenile science fiction literature, both educational and entertaining. And I thought I'd point out a couple specific texts that I thought were both indicative of the series and also really just great works that I would recommend. Take, for example, Mists of Dawn by Chad Oliver. Published in 1952, it's one of the earliest books in the series. On top of being a science fiction author, Chad Oliver was also an anthropologist, and he really used his profession um, to great effect in the book. The story tells um, the tale of a young man named Mark Nye, whose uncle is a nuclear physicist at the White Sands Missile Range. This same uncle on the side just so happened to have developed a time machine. And young Mark Nye ends up being accidentally transported to the Stone Age by this time machine. So he ends up at about 50,000 BCE. Now, the time machine requires two full weeks to recharge before it's ready to make the return trip. And so the young protagonist has to survive in prehistory for two full weeks. What's fascinating about this book is that it gives the cutting-edge theory at the time, not just the scientific consensus, but really an insider's view of the understanding of human development. We get an anthropologist's perspective on the prehistoric humanity and get to interact with it up close and personal through this young protagonist. So not only do you have an action-packed adventure story with Neanderthals and Cro-Magnon men and mammoth hunts and war, but... You also have this scientific perspective. And in fact, the opening of the book, the foreword, is an essay on the science of anthropology and how the author uses anthropology in the telling of the story. So it's a very seamless and clever blend of the scientific and the fictional in this tale. And I should point out that educational forwards explaining how science is utilized in the story is one of the hallmarks of the Winston science fiction set. Another of the novels I would particularly recommend is Vault of the Ages by Paul Anderson. This is a story of a post-apocalyptic world in which nuclear warfare has really decimated the Earth. And in reaction to this nuclear holocaust, the human ancestors of the characters in the story turned their back on technology and tried to eradicate it from their culture. So you have a world that no longer is nuclear war capable, but you also have a world that lacks many of the great things that science has made possible, from advanced medicine and healthcare care to farming techniques and agricultural implements. Religions and philosophies have sprung up in order to justify the idea that technology is taboo. This is the story of a young teen who discovers an underground vault that contains some of the last known relics of the technological era. And he ends up making a very compelling plea to his people, saying, now that we know that technology can be misused, we can, in fact, learn from our past mistakes and not misuse it in the future. And so he appeals to all sides not to throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater, but in fact to rescue the useful technology and adapt it back into their lives. And it's a great story, an empowering story for young people, because it comes down to just a handful of committed people standing up for what they believe against, quite literally, armies trying to eradicate this technology. And in true Golden Age fashion, it offers a distinctly pro-technology, pro-progress, pro-rationality argument. Again, these reflect some of the standard and some of the most inspiring themes of Golden Age science fiction. With their factual forewords emphasizing the importance of science and how science is used in their fictional stories, with the gorgeous artwork and with stories committed to character development and character growth. These books really do deserve to be kept and treasured and collected and remembered for their place in genre history. And I am not surprised to learn from talking amongst uh, my friends and colleagues that those people who do have these old volumes are passing them down to their children and reading them to them and ensuring that another generation's Imaginations are captured by the Winston Science Fiction set. If you Google Winston Science Fiction, you'll find a comprehensive list of all the titles. And if you go to winstonscifi.blogspot.com, you'll find some close, detailed pictures of some of the terrific artwork on some of the volumes. I'll end by reading you the publisher's announcement of the series as it ran in Publishers Weekly. Tales designed to sell to the expanding science fiction market. Only writers who have won the respect of the science fiction audience have been signed to write these accurate yet absorbing books. Each contains an explanation of new terms and a discussion of its scientific aspects for all ages. And as an adult reader of these juvenile works, I can emphatically agree with the for all ages Portion of that description. I hope you will look up the Winston Science Fiction set, and I hope you will join me again soon for another look back at science fiction history.
1: Amy, thank you so much. Next we have the fantastic David Brayne with his, a professor at Harvard. Uh, please, I want you to go over to David brin 's site. He has got some fantastic videos there. As soon as you land on his homepage, he's got some videos on there. He's given a reading from his book Earth, and he's, he's also got another video about Name That Villain, which, you know, he talks about naming the villain out of, like, films like E.T. and District 9. Please, these are just fantastic. And what I see is really nice. I didn't realise he's got this Wikipedia page going where his predictions for the future, do you know what I mean? So, like, what a clever guy as well. So, do pop over there, David Brinside, this is a fantastic story. It is narrated by Simon Hildebrandt. If you remember Simon, Simon's the man, hats, hats off to Simon. He was the one that kind of scribbled the code and did everything like that for the over, sofa, sofa stream. As, you know, if you're on the Android system, you can get that there. It's free on the Android system. Big thank you to Simon. He's done some great narrations as well. And this one of David Brin's is fantastic. Please pop over to David Brin's site, say hello, and say hello to Simon. Links on the front of the website. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present.
0: A Professor at Harvard by David Brin. Dear Lily, this transcript may be a bit rough. I'm dashing it off quickly, for reasons that should soon be obvious. Exciting news. Still, let me ask that you please don't speak of this, or let it leak, till I've had a chance to put my findings in a more academic format. Since May of 2002, I have been engaged to catalogue the Thomas Kuiper Collection, which Harvard acquired in that notorious bidding war a couple of years ago on eBay. The acclaimed astronomer-philosopher had been amassing trunkloads of documents from the late 16th and early 17th centuries, individually and in batches, with no apparent pattern, rhyme or reason. Accounts of the Dutch Revolution, letters from Johannes Kepler, sailing manifests of ports in southern England, ledgers and correspondence from the Italian Inquisition, early documents of Massachusetts Bay Colony, and narratives about the establishment of Harvard College. The last category was what most interested the trustees so I got to work separating them from the apparent clutter. That is, it seemed clutter, an unrelated jumble, till intriguing patterns began to emerge. Let me trace the story as was revealed to me in bits and pieces. It begins with the apprenticeship of a young English boy named Henry Stevens. Henry was born to a family of petty gentry farmers in Kent during the year 1595. According to parish records, his birth merited noting as mirabilis. He was premature and should have died of the typhus that claimed his mother. But somehow, the infant survived. He arrived during a time of turmoil. Parliament had passed a law that anyone who questioned the Queen's religious supremacy, or persistently absented themselves from Anglican services, should be imprisoned or banished from the country, never to return on pain of death. Henry's father was a leader among the Puritan dissenters in one of England's least tolerant counties. Hence, the family was soon hurrying off to exile, departing by ship for the Dutch city of Leyden. Leyden, you'll recall, was already renowned for its brave resistance to the Spanish army of Philip II. As a reward, Prince William of Orange and the Dutch Parliament gave the city a choice. Freedom from taxes for a hundred years, or the right to establish a university. Leyden chose a university. Here, the Stevens family joined a growing expatriate community, English dissenters, French Huguenots, Jews, and others thronging into the cities of Middelburg, Leiden, and Amsterdam. Under the Union of Utrecht, Holland was the first nation to explicitly respect individual political and religious liberty and to recognise the sovereignty of the people rather than the monarch. Both the American and the French revolutions specifically referred to this precedent. Henry was apparently a bright young fellow, not only did he adjust quickly, growing up multilingual in English, Dutch and Latin, but he showed an early flair for practical arts like smithing and surveying. The latter profession grew especially prominent as the Dutch transformed their landscape, sculpting it with dikes and levees, claiming vast acreage from the sea. Overcoming resistance from his traditionalist father, Henry managed to get himself apprentice to the greatest surveyor of the time, Willebrod Snell van Leeuwen, or Snellius, in that position, Henry would have been involved in the geodetic mapping of Holland, the first great project using triangulation to establish firm lines of location and orientation, using methods still applied today. While working with Snellius, Henry apparently audited some courses offered by Willem's father, Professor Rudolphus Snellius, at the University of Leiden. Rudolphus lectured on Planeterum Theorica et Euclidis Elementa, and evidently was a follower of Copernicus. Meanwhile, the Sun, also authorised to teach astronomy, specialised in the Almagest of Ptolemaeus. The Kuyper Collection contains a lovely little notebook, written in a fine hand, though in rather vulgar Latin, wherein Henry Stevens describes the ongoing intellectual dispute between those two famous Dutch scholars, Snellius Elder and Younger. Witnessing this intellectual tussle first-hand must have been a treat for Henry, who would have known how few opportunities there were for open discourse in the world beyond Leyden. But things were just getting interesting, for at the same moment that a teenage apprentice was tracking amiable family quarrels over heliocentric versus geocentric astronomies, some nearby Dutchmen were busy crafting the world's first telescope. The actual inventor is unknown. Secrecy was a bad habit practiced by many innovators of that time. Till now, the earliest mention was in September 1608, when a man from the Low Countries, offered a telescope for sale at the annual Frankfurt Fair. It had a convex and a concave lens, offering a magnification of seven. So I felt a rising sense of interest when I heard Henry's excited account of the news, dated six months earlier, offering some clues that scholars may find worth pursuing. Later, though, not today. For you see, I left that trail as soon as another grew apparent, one far more exciting. Here's a hint. Word of the new instrument, flying across Europe by personal letter, soon reached a certain person in northern Italy. Someone who, from description alone, was able to reinvent the telescope and put it to exceptionally good use. Yes, I'm referring to the Sage of Pisa, Big G himself. And soon the whole continent was abuzz about his great discoveries. The moons of Jupiter, lunar mountains, the phases of Venus, and so on. Naturally, all of this excited old Rudolphus, poor Grumpy Villabrod muttered that it seemed presumptuous to draw cosmological conclusions from such evidence. Both Snellius Patris and Filio agreed, however, that it would be a good idea to send a representative south as quickly as possible to learn first-hand about any improvements in telescope design that could aid the practical art of surveying. So it was that in the year 1612, at age 17, young Henry Stevens of Kent headed off to Italy and there the documented story stops for a few years. From peripheral evidence, bank records and such, it would appear that small amounts were sent to Pisa from the Snell family accounts in the form of a stipend. Nothing large or well-attributed, but a steady stream that lasted until about 1616, when H. Stephans abruptly reappeared in the employment ledger of Villabrod the Surveyor. What was Henry up to all that time? One might squint and imagine him counting pulse beats in order to help time a pendulum's sway, or using his keen surveyor's eye to track a ball's descent along an inclined plane. Did he help to sketch Saturn's rings? Might his hand have dropped two weights, heavy and light, over the rail of a leaning tower, while the master physicist stood watching below? There is no way to tell, not even from the documents in the Kuiper collection. There is, however another item from this period that Kuiper missed, but that I found in a scan of Vatican archives. An early letter from the Italian scientist Evangelista Torricelli to someone he called Uncle Henry, who he himself met as a child around 1614. Oblique references are enticing. Was this Henry, the same man with whom Torricelli would have later adventures? Alas, the letter has passed through so many collectors' hands over the years that its provenance is unclear. We must wait some time for Torricelli to enter our story in a provable or decisive way. Meanwhile, back to Henry Stevens. After his return to Leyden in 1616, there is little of significance for several years. His name appears regularly in account ledgers, also on survey maps, now signing on his own behalf as people begin to rely ever more on the geodetic arts he helped develop. Philip Snellius was by now hauling in 600 florins per annum and journeyman Henry apparently earned his share. Oh, a name very similar to Henry's can be found on the membership rolls of the Leyden Society, a philosophical club with highly distinguished membership. The spelling is slightly different, but people were lackadaisical about such things in those days. Anyway, it's a good guess that Henry kept up his interest in science, paying keen attention to new developments. Then, abruptly, his world changed again. Conditions had grown worse for dissenters back in England, Henry's father, having returned home to press for concessions from James I, was rewarded with imprisonment. Finally, the king offered a deal. Amnesty in exchange for a new and extreme form of exile. Participation in a fresh attempt to settle an English colony in the New World. Of course, everyone knows about the pilgrims, their reasons for fleeing England, and setting forth on the Mayflower, imagining that they were bound for Virginia, though by chicanery and mischance they wound up instead along the New England coast above Cape Cod. All of that is standard catechism in American history 1A, offering a mythic basis for our Thanksgiving holiday. And much of it is just plain wrong. For one thing, the Mayflower did not first set forth from Plymouth, England. It only stopped there briefly to take on a few more colonists and supplies, having actually begun its voyage in Holland. The expatriate community was the true source of people and material. And right there, listed among the ship's complement, having obediently joined his father and family, you will find a stalwart young man of twenty five. Henry Stevens. Again, details are sketchy. After a rigorous crossing oft portrayed in book and film, the pilgrims arrived at Plymouth Rock on december the twenty first, sixteen twenty. Professor Kuiper hunted amongst the colonial records and found occasional glimpses of our hero. Apparently he survived that terrible first winter and did more than his share to help the young colony endure. Relations with the local natives were crucial and Professor Kuyper scribbled a number of notes, which I hope to follow up on later. One of them suggests that Henry went west for some time to live among the Mohegans and other tribes, exploring great distances, making drawings, and collecting samples of flora and fauna. If so, we may have finally discovered the name of the American friend, who supplied William Harvey with his famous New World collection, the core element upon which Edmund Halley later began sketching his theory of evolution. Henry's first provable reappearance in the record comes in 1625, with his marriage to Prosper White Moon Forest, a name that provokes interesting speculation. There is no way to verify that his wife was a Native American woman, though subsequent township entries show eight children, only one of whom appeared to have died young, apparently a happy and productive family for the time. Certainly any bias or hostility towards Prosper must have been quelled by respect. Her name is noted prominently amongst those who succoured the sick during the pestilence year of 1627. Further evidence of local esteem came in 1629 when Henry was engaged by the new Massachusetts Bay Colony as official surveyor. This led to what was heretofore his principal claim for historical notice as architect who laid down the basic plan for Boston Town, a plan that included innovative arterial and peripheral lanes looking far beyond the town's rude origins. As you may know, It became a model for future urban design that would be called the New England style. This rapid success might have led Henry directly to a position of great stature in the growing colony had not events brought his tenure to an abrupt end in 1631. That was the year, you'll recall, when Roger Williams stirred up a hornet's nest in the Bay Colony by advocating unlimited religious tolerance, even for Catholics, Jews and infidels. Forced temporarily to flee Boston, Williams and his adherents established a flourishing new colony in Rhode Island, before returning to Boston in triumph in 1634. And yes, the first township of this new colony, this centre of tolerance, was surveyed and laid out by you know who. It's here that things take a decidedly odd turn. Odd? That doesn't half describe how I felt when I began to realise what happened next. Lily, I have barely slept for the last week. Instead, I popped pills and wore electrodes in order to concentrate as a skein of connections began to take shape. For example, I had simply assumed that Professor Kuiper's hoard was so eclectic because of an obsessive interest in a certain period of time, nothing more. He seemed to have grabbed things randomly, so many documents with so little connecting tissue between them. Take the rare and valuable first edition that many consider the centrepiece of his collection, a rather beaten but still beautiful copy of Dialogo sopra i due massimi sistemi del mondo, or A Dialogue Concerning Two Systems of the World. This document alone helped drive the eBay bidding war, which Harvard eventually topped because the collection also contained many papers of local interest. A copy of the dialogue. I felt awed just touching it with gloved hands. Did any other books do more to propel the birth of modern science? The debate between the Copernican and Ptolemaic astronomical systems reached its zenith within this publication sparking a frenzy of reaction, not all of it favourable. Responding to this implicit challenge, the Papal Palace and the Inquisition were so severe that most of Italy's finest researchers emigrated during the decade that followed, many of them settling in Leiden and Amsterdam. That included young evangelista Torricelli, who by 1631 was already well known as a rising star of physical science. Settling in Holland, Torricelli commenced rubbing elbows with friends of his uncle Henry, and performing experiments that would lead to the invention of the barometer. In correspondence that year, Torricelli shows deep worry about his old master, back in Pisa. Often he would use code words and initials. Obscurity was a form of protective covering in those days, and he did not want to get the old man in even worse trouble. It would do no good for G to be seen as a martyr or cause celebre in Protestant lands up north. That might only antagonise the Inquisition even further. Still, Torricelli's sense of despond grew evident as he wrote to friends all over Europe, passing on word of the crime being committed against his old master. Without naming names, Torricelli described the imprisonment of a great and brilliant man, threats of torture, the coerced abjuration of his life's work, and then even worse torment as the grey-bearded professori entered confinement under house arrest, forbidden even to leave his home or stroll the lanes and hills, or even to correspond, except clandestinely, with other lively minds. What does all this have to do with that copy of Dialogo in the Kuyper Collection? Like many books that are centuries old, this one has accumulated a morass of margin notes and annotations, scribbled by various owners over the years, some of them cogent gloss upon the elegant mathematics and physical arguments, and others written by perplexed or sceptical or hostile readers. But one large note especially caught my eye. Latin words on the flyleaf, penned in a flowing hand, words that translate as, To the designer of providence. Come soon, deliverance of our father. All previous scholars who examined this particular copy of Dialogo have assumed that the inscription on the flyleaf was simply a benediction or dedication to the Almighty, though in rather unconventional form. No one knew what to make of the signature, consisting of two large letters. E.T. Can you see where I'm heading with this? Struck by a sudden suspicion, I arranged for Kuiper's edition of Dialogo to be examined by the archaeological department, where special interests soon focused on dried botanical materials embedded at the tight joints of numerous pages. All sorts of debris can settle into any book that endures four centuries, but lately, instead of just brushing it away, people have begun to study this material. Imagine my excitement when the report came in. Pollen, seeds and stem residue from an array of plant types, nearly all of them native to New England. It occurred to me that the phrase «designer of providence» might not, in this case, have solely a religious import. Could it be a coded salutation to an architectural surveyor, one who established the street plan of the capital of Rhode Island? Might father, in this case, refer not to the Almighty, but instead to somebody far more temporal and immediate, the way two apprentices refer to their beloved master? What I can verify from the open record is this. Soon after helping Roger Williams return to Boston in triumph, Henry Stevens hastily took his leave of America and his family departing on a vessel bound for Holland. Why that particular moment? It should have been an exciting time for such a fellow. The foundations of a whole new civilization were being laid. Who can doubt that Henry took an important part in early discussions with Williams, Winthrop, Anne Hutchinson and others, deliberating over the best way to establish tolerance and lasting peace with native tribes, how to institute better systems of justice and education, discussions that would soon bear surprising fruit. And yet, just as the fruit was ripening... Stephens left, hurrying back to a Europe that he now considered decadent and corrupt. What provoked this sudden flight from his cherished new world? It was July 1634. Antwerp shipping records show him disembarking there on the 5th. On the 20th, a vague notation in the town hall archive tells of a meeting between several guildmasters and a group of foreign doctors, a term that could apply to any group of educated people from beyond the city walls. Only the timing seems provocative. In early August, the Maritime Bank recorded a large withdrawal of 250 florins from the account of Villabrold Snellius, authorised in payment to H. Stephons by letter of credit from Leiden. Travel expenses? Plus some extra for clandestine bribes? Yes, the clues are slim even for speculating. And yet we also know that at this time the young exiled scholar Evangelista Torricelli vacated his home. Bidding farewell to his local patrons, he then mysteriously vanished from sight forever. So, temporarily, did Henry Stevens. For almost a year there is no sign of either man, no letters, no known mention of anyone seeing them. Not until the spring of 1635, when Henry stepped once more upon the wharf in Boston town, into the waiting arms of Prosper and their children. Sons and daughters who presumably clamoured about their papa, shouting the age-old refrain, What did you bring me? What did you bring me? What he had brought them was the future. The future. Oops, sorry about that, Lily. You must be chafing for me to get to the point. Or did you cheat? Have you already done a quick Mentat scan of the archives, skipping past Henry's name on the Grafenhach ship manifest, looking to see who else disembarked along with him that bright April day? No, it won't be that obvious. They were afraid, you see, and with good reason. True, the Holy See quickly forgave the fugitive and declared him safe from retribution. But the secretive masters of the Inquisition were less eager to pardon a famous escapee. They had already proved relentless in pursuit of those who slip away. While pretending that he still languished in custody, they must have sent agents everywhere searching. So look instead for assumed names. Protective camouflage. Try Mr. Quicksilver, which was the common word in English for mercury, a metal that is liquid at room temperature and a key ingredient in early barometers. Is the name familiar? It would be if you went to this university. And now it's plain. That had to be Torricelli. A flood of scholarly papers may come from this connection alone. An old mystery solved. But move on now to the real news. Have you scanned the passenger list carefully? How about Mr. Kenneret? Kenneret, one of the alternate names in Hebrew for the Sea of Galilee. Yes, dear. Kenneret. I'm looking at his portrait right now on the Wall of Founders. And despite obvious efforts at disguise, no beard for example... It astonishes me that no one has commented till now on the resemblance between Harvard's earliest professor of natural philosophy and the scholar who we are told died quietly under house arrest in Pisa way back in 1642. It makes you wonder, would a Catholic savant from Papist Italy have been welcome in Puritan Boston, or on the faculty of John Harvard's new college, without the quiet revolution of reason that Roger Williams set in motion? Would that revolution have been so profound or successful? Without strong support from the Surveyors Guild and the Seven United Tribes? Lacking the influence of Kinneret, might the American tradition of excellence in mathematics and science have been delayed for decades, maybe centuries? Sitting here in the Harvard University Library, staring out the window at rowers on the river, I can scarcely believe that less than four centuries have passed since the Grafenhach docked not far from here on that chilly spring morning of 1635. Three hundred and sixty seven years ago, to be exact. Is that all? Think about it, Lily. Just fifteen human generations, from those rustic beginnings to the dawn of a new millennium. How the world has changed. Ill-disciplined, I left my transcriber set to record surface thoughts, and so these personal musings have all been logged for you to savour, if you choose high-fidelity download. But can even that convey the emotion I feel while marvelling at the secret twists and turns of history? If only some kind of time or paratime travel were possible so history could become an observational or even experimental science. Instead, we are left to use primitive methods, piecing together clues, sniffing and burrowing in dusty records, hoping the essential story has not been completely lost, yearning to shed a ray of light on whatever made us who we are. How much difference can one person make, I wonder? Even one gifted with talent and goodness and skill, and the indomitable will to persevere. Maybe some group other than the Iroquois would have invented the steamboat and the continental train, even if James Watt hadn't emigrated and gone native. But how ever could the Pan-American Covenant have succeeded without Ben Franklin sitting there in Havana to jest and soothe all the bickering delegates into signing? How important was Abraham Lincoln's Johannesburg Address in rousing the world to finish off slavery and apartheid? Might the flagging struggle have failed without him? Or is progress really a team effort, the way Kip Thorne credits his colleagues, Meta Einstein and Meta Feynman, claiming that he never could have created the transfer drive without their help? Even this fine Widener library where I sit, bequeathed to Harvard by one of the alumni who died when Titanic hit that asteroid in 1912, seems to support the notion that things will happen pretty much the same, whether or not a specific individual or group happens to be on the scene. No one can answer these questions. My own recent discoveries, following a path blazed by Kuiper and the others, don't change things very much, except perhaps to offer a sense of satisfaction, much like the gratification Henry Stevens must have felt the day he stepped down the wharf, embraced his family, shaking the hand of his friend Williams, and breathing the heady, salty air of freedom in this new world, then turning to introduce his friends from across the sea, friends who would do epochal things during the following twenty years, becoming legends while Henry himself faded into contented obscurity. Can one person change the world? Maybe not. So instead, let's ask what would Harvard be like if not for Quicksilver Torricelli? Or if not, for Professor Galileo Galilei? <laughs>
1: There you go. Thank you so much. I think it's one of my ambitions now to get to get an interview with David Brin. I just think what a clever guy as well. Looks after himself as well. You know, you're a fit-looking bloke. God, I'm 44 and I feel like a, a bag of awful tied up nasty. Hey, he's looking after himself. So, David, well done, sir. Next up, we have a little promo for FogCon. Are you sitting at home alone reading Jeff Vandermeer and wondering if you could ever meet
3: him? Is your framed copy of The City Not Long After waiting for an autograph from Pat Murphy. Did you always want to go to WisCon, but it's too far away because you live in the Bay Area? Are you a science fiction fan looking for a friendly, literary, fun, and fabulous science fiction convention? Well, look no further. FogCon is here for
4: you. FogCon is a new science fiction convention premiering in San Francisco this year. March 11th through 13th, 2011. Honored guests include Pat Murphy and Jeff
3: Vandermeer.
2: And there's even a guest editor, Anne Vandermeer. Hey, do you think she knows Jeff? <laughs> the convention will be haunted by a ghost of honor, Fritz Leiber. <laughs>
3: There will be all the usual great convention stuff. Panels, readings, a dealer room, parties. And some new interesting stuff, too. Like a poster session, a do-your-own programming session, homemade beer, and possibly even a karaoke night.
4: Remember, March 11 through 13 in San Francisco. FogCon.org It's the weekend after Potlatch.
3: Come for Potlatch, stay for FogCon
1: there you go that is starship Suvas show 174 big thank you to david big thank you to amy mr damien knight thank you sir and megan argo narrators simon and tomash thank you so much Don't forget the two workshops we've got running now, the Writers workshop with some fantastic writers in there. And but you have to be quick, the narrator's workshop as well, only a couple of days left. Do look out for them. I have the cards now for the the signature cards that D sent over. Dee, honestly. Wow man, you're a clever sod. Thank you so much. Got them so if you want to donate to starship Silver, donate ten pound or more, keep this bird flying high, get you on them in the post i 'm going to be posting them out to everyone who's donated and you know who's done that amount. big thank you. there you go till next week, have a great time. See you next week until then, just like to say, good night from me. Ooh.
4: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... Starship Sofa. Evacuation Procedure Initiated. Shuttle set for watch. Airlock will be opened in 3... Two, one.